Hey, it's the King Plum. I'm not quite sure how I feel about the things I've learned or discovered or even what I'm thinking about today. And they all fall under the umbrella of free will. Or maybe I should say, quote, free will. Before I get into the meat of it, I heard a really interesting podcast several months ago from Rationally Speaking with Julia Galef, episode number 163, entitled Free Will and Moral Responsibility. They really dug into the philosophy side of it and what exactly we might or might not be responsible for. Anyway, they brought up a lot of interesting topics and things to think about. But today, I want to tell you about this study I learned about in Bo Lotto's book, Deviate. In the early 1980s, a man by the name of Benjamin Libet did this experiment, where his team fixed electrodes to the scalps of participants. The participants were then asked to move either their right or left wrist. But before doing so, they indicated the exact instant when they made the decision to make their wrist move. So I don't have the particulars, but somehow or another there was a device in included in this process and it recorded the instant the participants' neuroelectric signals indicated that their decision was made inside the brain. Then the instant they consciously made the decision and the instant of the actual movement of the participants' wrists. So just a, a brief recap there because I missed it the first time. That was the neuroelectrical signals indicated indicated the decision was made and then the instant they consciously made the decision plus the actual movement. So on average the signals came approximately 400 milliseconds before the self-aware decision to move and that decision came 200 milliseconds before the actual movement. At first blush, this seems pretty straightforward. Everything is working in a linear sequence. But apparently, even to this day, there are a lot of implications that have come out of this experiment. Those neuroelectrical signals are happening even before we are aware of our decision. And if those things are happening when we are unaware of them, then they really can't be considered part of free will, can they? I think the answer to that is, no, but, but, but I'm still working my way through some of this. I can wrap my head around the unconscious mind making my heart beat and keeping me breathing. Even the idea of unconsciously processing data. There might be times when I see a bunch of numbers or read something and I might have a desire to want to calculate them or do something with them, but I haven't formally constructed that thought. And before I know it, there's a number in my head. But, and that's the number of what would be the answer if I took the time to calculate it out. But I always second guess myself, so then I go back and actually do it and find that typically the answer is correct. And I don't know how I got there. But did I officially make a decision to make that calculation? I don't think so. Was there a desire to know it? Always? I don't know. I also don't think that just because this is the way the brain works that free will doesn't exist, even though some might like to claim that. And here's why. Because even if unconsciously all of these decisions are being made, the next step in this linear sequence is that our, our awareness then makes that decision. But 
in my mind, I think of that awareness, that next step as being the point of where we could have free will. We can choose to go with what our unconscious fed us, or we can choose to rehash the data and choose something different. Or, or now that I think about it, maybe that's just an illusion, choosing something different that is. Because the unconscious is doing the, the processing and spitting out something to us while we're thinking we're doing it consciously. But going back to that example of the numbers and desire, maybe those emotions play a role as well. That those neuroelectrical signals are just not operating on their own. That the whole sequence is not entirely linear. Ooh, now, now here's an idea for you. Okay, typically when we think of free will, the other option is fate or predestination or determinism and that other option is something outside of us but now looking at how the brain works this opens up a completely other world <laughs> no pun intended or perhaps it was so what if we are just along for the ride okay i'm being somewhat silly here but at the same time i'm kind of like I'm just throwing this out there, like, what if? But let's just say we are along for the ride. We don't know what's driving the quote unconscious. I mean, that's what we call it. But for all we know, there's some little parasite or something that makes these decisions. I mean, obviously, we don't have any anything that has ever shown up to, sh to, to, to make us believe this. So I'm being somewhat silly here. I used the word parasite there, but really what I was imagining was more like something alien. I mean, in the way they've described this and how the brain works, how much control do we even have over our own bodies then? Let alone decisions about our lives or, you know, anything on a grand scale. Again, I'm being a bit silly here. Really, I think it sort of comes down to how we define free will. And I think we also have to consider that maybe that definition needs to incorporate a lot more than maybe what we initially thought, especially if our decisions are predominantly coming from, I say predominantly, but I guess entirely coming from the unconscious mind. Because in that regard then, we don't know where the unconscious mind is pulling information from. Or maybe I guess I should be asking too, those feelings and emotions and desires, do those come first or do those come as a result of the unconscious mind? I think how we label them comes afterward. Anyway, I think there are so many different rabbit holes I could go down with this topic, but what I'm trying to say is I think that the, the unconscious mind is a great unknown and perhaps because of its very nature of being unconscious will always be or maybe not always but has the potential to always be so really regardless of what data it's pulling and how it processes it for all we know even according to the definition we use of free will today maybe it does exercise some form of free will you know, the more I think about this, the more, uh, 
there's just more questions I have and the more possibilities of, uh, I don't know, just more rabbit holes. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to leave this where it's at and just, uh, I'm going to leave this in your lap and just say enjoy. Hey Seeking Plum, how are you doing? So I'm calling in about this whole, uh, uh, well, it's about the comment I left about parasites. So your whole thing on basically how much of our actions is free will struck a chord. It reminded me of this article I, I read or came across and it was about this uh, parasite called Taxoplasma. Taxoplasma. Uh, apparently half of the human race supposedly is... Um, has this parasite in them and it lives in cats um, digestive tract in their stomachs and here's the thing so the parasite what it does is it lays eggs that you know basically like alien lays eggs that rats and other things that cats eat pick up and this is the crazy part when they're in the host the rats right and whatever it makes the rats run towards the cats like that's how crazy it is it it, it, it psychs the rats or the mice now you could do a Google search for mind controlling um, parasites if you haven't already, but basically the gist of it is that the experiment that the scientists have run on this toxoplasma infested mice is basically um, cat urine, the smell of cat urine creates a panic with any normal mouse. Any normal mouse, it smells cat urine, it's like, yo, it's time to get the fuck out of here. It just knows, right? This is not a good place to be, I'm gonna get eaten. But Toxoplasma um, infested mice, mice that are under uh, the Toxoplasma control, they not only do they aren't affected by the smell of cat urine, they in fact run towards it. They're on a suicide mission when they're infested with Toxoplasma. And now how does that boil down to humans? How does it translate? Well, they say schizophrenia. Um, people have higher Toxoplasma in them. So as you were talking about this, Momac, it started bringing up vague memories, but I couldn't piece it all together. So I went digging for more information. So apparently Toxoplasma can infect any warm-blooded animal, but cats are the only host within which it can sexually reproduce. So my vague recollection is that the reason that the rats and the mice run towards the cat is because this parasite needs to reproduce. I also learned a few other things, that when it infects men and women, we are affected differently. Supposedly, women become more warm-hearted, outgoing, conscientious, and moralistic, while men become more likely to disregard rule, more expedient, suspicious, and jealous. They've done numerous experiments and tests. One tested uh, reaction time and concentration and found that those infected with Toxoplasma had lower reaction time and concentration compared to the control group. But they did add this caveat that the effect of the infection only explained 10% of the variability in the performance. So pretty much it was negligible. By the way, for anyone interested, I found this information on the Toxoplasma Wikipedia page. I could be wrong here, but it seemed like, although there have been a lot of studies and we know that there is something going on with respect to how Toxoplasma affects us, that they can't quite determine 
the definitiveness of that. Like you mentioned, Momac, they also said something about uh, this affecting those with schizophrenia. They also mentioned uh, bipolar disorder. But if this affects 30 to 50 percent of the population, 30 to 50 percent of the population does not have one or both or either of those um, disorders uh, or mental health concerns. Anyway, it's curious. (laughs) It really makes me wonder when I have a neighbor who seems to have an issue about emptying her litter box and it it has caused issues in the building. And, (laughs) and, uh, and, And I guess I have a strong aversion to it. So here's different people in the building have different a different sensitivity to it? I don't know. It's funny. That said, I wouldn't say that I am not infected because I have spent a large portion of my life surrounded by cats. But all of these details aside, if we look at toxoplasma and it only affects 30 to 50 percent of the population, then what about the other 70 or 50 percent of the population? I'm joking here, but you know, I mean, if if we're considering this or a parasite as possibly affecting, you know, the unconscious mind, somehow or another we have to figure out what that parasite is and whatever it is, it has to affect 100% of us. That's kind of crazy when you think about it, isn't it? The alien visual seems almost more realistic or possible, as crazy as it is in my head. I have these, like, visuals of beings somewhere up in space having these, I don't know, some sort of an effect on us down here. And and it's so ludicrous that, uh, I I don't even know. But as per usual, it's probably my imagination running away with something that's pretty much more mundane. I wonder when we'll learn more. Thanks for calling in about this, Momac. I was, I was curious. Hello, Seeking Plum. I like this exploration into the idea of free will and our thoughts and decisions we make and why we make those decisions. And you were kidding around about how silly it is finding the loopholes and how silly it sounded. But this is what kids kind of find within the limitations of us as human beings. You know, the, you know when they say, how are, we, how are we made? Now, why is that? Why is that? Why is that? And then you get to a point where you can't really answer. You can't answer. They could say, why is the sky blue? Well, why is that? Well, why is that? Well, why is that? Why is that? And we can answer to a certain extent, but... In terms of creation and how and why we create these ideas and what are they for, that's stuff that we don't have yet the answers to. And I often wonder at times, should we have the answers? Would it change anything with how we think now? Damn, Edgar, I just lost a segment. Okay, Dewan, this call was really interesting and it brought up so many things that I have been thinking about off and on, and I just, I wanted to say thank you. When kids get on this cycle of asking why, I find it exciting and interesting. I'm just itching for my friend's daughter to reach this point. 
They have so much curiosity and you never know exactly where their train of thought is going to lead them. Yes, typically they're just saying the word why, but I really think that it is in their mind leading them on a path. They're figuring things out, they're learning. I recently heard uh, an anchor, a news anchor, mention something called the five whys. I'm not super familiar with it, but it sounds like it's a methodology to help us as adults regain this way of thinking. Because to some extent, I think that we have been conditioned to throw out the silly ideas and the creativeness when we are thinking and trying to learn. I don't know that this methodology necessarily encourages creativity, but it helps to get to the root of the problem or the issue that you're trying to solve. Anyway, back to the unknowable and whether we should know something or not. I could see being omniscient would be a problem, physiologically speaking and mentally speaking. Uh, not to mention how we live our lives and approach everyday decisions and so on. But about whether an individual uh, topic or idea or concept should or shouldn't be knowable, now that one, that one I think is a little different. Because what are we using to determine that it should not be knowable? Like, is this a principle or a belief? Or is this a concern about the future? This imaginary, if you will, boogeyman, you know, something we just can't perceive yet. Kind of like the narratives in dystopian and post-apocalyptic uh, fictional novels. I think that when we learn, and every time we ask those whys, we're constantly moving the, the goalpost so that we can learn more, right? And if we don't ask those whys, then we're not going to learn the goalpost. We're not going to continue learning or seeking out or exploring new things. And personally, I am a big fan of learning and exploring and discovery. But See, if we learn everything about the brain, inside and out, even about everything about the body, if someone has a belief or a faith, and knowing all that information would take away from their faith, then maybe they don't want to know. But shouldn't know? Well then, according to whom? I also think that the more we learn, and the more we continue to push out the goalpost, that means that the more responsibility we have. And a key to that is awareness. Like, for example, if we look at the internet, several decades ago, if there was rolling awareness, there could have been preparation so that we were not playing catch up with law enforcement or our judicial system or even cyber warfare. Most especially now at this pivotal point with AI, I also think that there will always be an amount of unknowable information out there, which keeps driving us to learn and know more, and we need that. So I kind of think that it depends. Whether something should be knowable or not depends on who's doing the asking and what the parameters are. Anyway, that's my two cents, and I'm gonna hope beyond hope that this publishes.